Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, go ahead, and if you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 36. Uh, we'll put the scripture up on screen uh, so you can follow along with us as well. But where we are today in Isaiah 36 is essentially the season finale of everything that we've been building this whole uh, book up until this point. Um, in Isaiah 36, the time period of, of where we are, it's right like 701 BC, and exactly 35 years before this point that we're about to read today, there was this king in Judah named Ahaz, and he got a report that the enemy was coming for him. And so he sought the, the prophet and Isaiah told him, this is what God wants you to do. This is how I want you to respond to the threat that's at your doorstep. Don't do anything. Don't, 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 don't go form some alliance with some foreign nation. Don't start getting, counting how many swords you have. Just trust me because I've got the power to end this thing overnight, so just trust me. Did King Ahaz trust the Lord? No, he went and made an alliance with his worst enemy. King Ahaz trusted his worst enemy before he trusted God. And following that, we've got 27 chapters of nothing but nonsense of Judah trying to find anybody that can help them out of the situation. Can we go over here and form an alliance with Egypt? Can we form an alliance with, with Babylon? Can we form an alliance with Moab? Can we form an alliance with the Philistines? And Isaiah, the whole time, he's like, nope, that's not gonna work. They're gonna fall, they're gonna fall. Assyria is gonna come in like this flying, fiery serpent, and they're just gonna take over all of the land, and there's no hope until you put your hope in God. And so Syria comes in and just decimates the land, and that's where we pick up today. Assyria has conquered the entire region, and the only city left was Jerusalem. There's one outpost, we talked about this previously, named Lachish, it's a Jewish city just like southwest of Jerusalem, and when we pick up today, that's where the army of Assyria is camped out. But the people of Jerusalem are surrounded and they're afraid for their lives because everything has fallen except for this last city. And Ahaz is gone and his son Hezekiah is ruling on the throne and Hezekiah has to make a choice today. Is he going to follow in the footsteps of his father and trust his own worst enemy rather than God or will Hezekiah trust the Lord? That's what we're saying today, Isaiah 36, let's go to verse one. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Just a quick pause. Here's a, here's a helpful thing when, it's, when you're reading Old Testament names. I was, I was listening to Preston preach uh, in my place last week. Thank you for doing that, brother. You did a killer job. Um, if you didn't, I wouldn't have told you, but um, anyway. And he, he was pronouncing, I believe, he, he said um, Sennacherib. Here's the thing about Old Testament names. We have a guess on how a lot of these names were pronounced, 
But if you go up into the north, like if you go to New Jersey and you ask somebody, what is that thing with four tires? They're going to say, that's a car. (laughs) But if you ask somebody from the south, what is that? They're going to say, that's a truck. (laughs) My point being is that it doesn't really, like there are some rules as far as grammar and how things are emphasized. When it comes to Hebrew, you can almost all Hebrew words have the emphasis at the end of the word. So if you're in doubt, just put the emphasis at the end of the word. But when it comes to pronunciations and stuff, really the most important thing is just be confident in your mistake. (laughs) Like you may be so wrong, but be wrong with a smile on your face. Okay? Because the way my mom pronounces my name and the way you pronounce my name is different. Lyle, you know what I'm talking about. Lyle's told me nobody pronounces his name the correct way. So when we're talking about these names, just take your best guess and be bold about it. So I'm going to say Sennacherib. I think the actual Hebrew pronunciation would be Sennacherib, but we don't even use that sound, so I'm not going to spit on you. Verse two, we're making progress. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish, that city we talked about earlier, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. So the Rabshakeh is a title for a military leader. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sent this military leader up to, this envoy, this representative, up to Jerusalem with a great army. And this guy stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And that is a very specific location. It's actually the same location in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, when Isaiah stood and looked at King Ahaz and said, trust the Lord, and he didn't. 35 years later, the envoy from the nation, he didn't, he trusted rather than trusting God, is now standing at the gates of Jerusalem, saying, I'm here to destroy you. Verse 3, and there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and that's interesting, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. Now, if you've been following along with us back in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through 25, Isaiah prophesied that Shebna, who was the head of the household at the time, would be removed from leadership, and his assistant Eliakim would be placed in charge. And here in verse three, we see that that prophecy has taken place. Eliakim is now the head of the household, and Shebna is now his secretary. Verse 4, the Rabshakeh, the guy standing outside Jerusalem, shouts up to the people on the wall and says, say, say to Hezekiah, I got a message for you. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust? that you have rebelled against me. Behold, you're trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who even tries to lean on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, what he's referencing is the fact that when Hezekiah took over, he tore down the high places of false idol worship. And his enemy saw that as a sign of weakness. Hezekiah saw it as a sign of faithfulness to the Lord, but the enemy is like, why'd you take down those 
those altars to worship those idols in high places. God's not gonna save you because you took those down. He doesn't understand how worship works. Verse eight, come now, won't you make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria? I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put riders and set on them. We'll even give you the horses to fight against us if you even have that many people left in the city. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So essentially he's saying the Lord's on my side, not your side. Then Eliakim, Shibna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic. We, we understand it. Aramaic was the official language of treaty. So this guy had come up and was speaking in Hebrew so that everybody on the wall heard it. And the representatives of Judah are asking, please speak in a language that these other guys on the wall don't understand because we don't want them going home and telling their wives what you said. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Verse 12, but the Rav Shekah said, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Things you never thought you'd hear in church. So the king of Syria sent this representative to mock God's people and the goal was psychological warfare. And he's questioning their hope, he's questioning their strategies, he's questioning their confidence, he's questioning their faith. And as the chapter continues in 13 through 22, he starts questioning their trust in God and he essentially says the Lord's not gonna rescue you because the Lord can't rescue you. He doesn't have enough power to rescue you. Now as I'm reading through these scriptures, I feel like this scenario is very, it feels familiar. It feels like I've heard this somewhere before. Uh, yes, it's our daily lives. This is not the last time in the life cycle of the people of faith where the enemy has not sent some representative to accuse us about our lack. There's not a day that passes that the enemy doesn't some, send some kind of demonic force to tempt or mock God's people. And you hear this mocking, almost like a man standing at the gate shouting up at you, you're not good enough, God does not love you, he isn't even real, if he was, he's too busy for you, your faith isn't good enough, God's had enough with you, you're a failure. And that is why Paul tells us in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 18, that we're supposed to put on the full armor of God. To withstand the schemes of the devil because he is a master of psychological warfare. And he, carries very, he cares very little on whether you, whether you are or not doing something, but he carries a lot about what you are thinking about a thing because he knows that what you think about a thing will dictate what you do about a thing. And so what you believe in here, in your heart, where you place your faith dictates what you do with your life and how you live it. 
Paul says we wrestle against cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against an entire unseen realm that is working against the the promises and uh, the plans of God. Now, they're not going to succeed, but it's not going to stop them from trying. They've been trying for a long time, and they're not stopping anytime soon until our king cracks the sky and comes back and sets all things right. So in the meantime, we're supposed to treat our daily lives more like a battlefield and less like a vacation, which is what we're guilty of because we spend most of our money and most of our time on things that make us comfortable and we don't think like warriors. Now, you may not like this parallel, but I want you to think about this for a moment. What do you think a member of ISIS thinks about when they go to bed? What do, you think of, what, do you, what do you imagine they think about when they wake up in the morning? Now, I've never met one, but I can imagine that it's probably, what can I do tomorrow morning to further this cause? And when you wake up in the morning, what can I do today to further this cause? Anything else is a distraction. There's only one thing that I fix my mind on. And when you read the entirety of the Old Testament, New Testament, you see, you walk away with a sense that God is building something significant and he's in his graciousness asking us to participate in that and it's a source of our joy. But the more we say, like, I'm on board with that but I'm also on board with these nine other things that are pulling my affection, guess how impactful you're going to be in building his kingdom when your heart is pulled. Like Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. There's a reason why he said that, because it's true. You gotta put on the full armor of God and you gotta stop acting like um, an innocent bystander who's just watching the world pass you by. There is an attack regularly against your mind and your heart and your affections and it comes in the form of some of the simplest innocent little things it comes in the form of of um, YouTube videos it comes in the form of the news cycle it comes in the form of of advertising telling you that your life would be so much better if you just bought this one thing all of it is a play for your affections because if your affections can get stirred for this world then guess what you have no appetite for anymore the glory of Jesus Christ and the significant work of participating with him and building his kingdom. And so that's what I see when I see this. It's not hard for me to make this comparison because I'm seeing the tactics of the enemy, they're always the same. The enemy attacked the people of God 2,700 years ago with psychological warfare to wear them down and to get them to start compromising and questioning their allegiances, and and it's no different today. Now jump over to 37, let's pick up in verse one. Let's see what Hezekiah's response is to the enemy's attack. As soon as King, excuse me, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Now those are biblical forms of outward displays of the humility in here. So he's not just doing this because it's some kind of protocol. It's an outward response. It's an emotional response to a reality that was in here. He's now broken and humble. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet 
Isaiah, the son of Amos. Oh, look who they're looking for now. Finally, they're calling Isaiah. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke and grace and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. People are in a really difficult spot. It may be that the Lord your God, not the Lord our God, these guys were, these guys were Hebrews. This was their God too. But look at the way they're talking about it. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rav Shekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. And when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now pause right there because Hezekiah's response is really important. What does he do when the enemy starts bombarding him with psychological warfare and messing with his head and threatening him with danger? His father went and formed other alliances to, to kind of pad his army, but what does Hezekiah do? Hezekiah humbles himself in prayer and he seeks a word from the Lord from the prophet. I want you to, I want you to underline this, star it, mark it, highlight it, then circle it because Hezekiah's response here is the same response that God's people should be using today for the mocking assaults and intimidation and threats from the enemy. What Hezekiah did is the same thing you do when the enemy starts telling you, hey, remember that little hole of depression that you crawled into last time and, and it wasn't pleasant, but it gave you a little warm fuzzy? Go back down into that. Remember the last time you failed and how bad everyone treated you? How about you take this failure and just hide it and don't tell anyone. Don't live in community. Don't share it and let people pray for you. Go hide in a closet. When those when that assault starts, Hezekiah's response was to humble himself and get into the word, and that is our response too. See, the prophet brought the word of God, but today, the Bible brings us the word of God. This is the word of God. And so when the enemy starts assaulting you and telling you, you're not good enough, you should pick a different profession, you're an embarrassment, he doesn't love you, hide that thing that you just did, your response should be the same response as Hezekiah. You don't puff yourself up and you don't start walking around trying to find ways to hide your failures. You humble yourself in your prayer and you go to the word of God. Now I am familiar with the temptation that we all have as human beings to wanna hide, to wanna puff up, to do what Hezekiah did to go make alliances, but let's look at the track record of doing that, okay? What happens when you don't choose Hezekiah's path, when you choose Ahaz's path? What happens when your response to imminent threat and danger is to go find ways in this world to protect yourself rather than trusting in the Lord? What does that yield? Well, here it yielded 28 chapters of pain and it didn't stop the enemy. But when Hezekiah responds with prayer and humility, God 
answers. I want you to see what this answer looks like because it's pretty wild. Go to verse eight. So the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, and he had heard that the king had left Lahish. All right, so that evening, when Hezekiah went and prayed and called the prophet, the word of the Lord was, don't worry, I'm gonna send them away. They're gonna go back to their own land, and I've got plans for Sennacherib. So the response that Hezekiah got from praying was, I'm gonna take care of my people. Now that night, the Rav Shekah, the guy who came to bring that message, he returned back to where his master was fighting, where Sennacherib was fighting, and found that the king of Assyria was fighting against Libna. So, so the guys from Egypt and Cush, the remnant, had kind of come up and flanked and were fighting right outside the city of Lachish. In verse nine, now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, the king of Cush, um, he has set out to fight against you, and when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying. So, Cush, uh, Egypt, they were kind of an alliance. They had come up, they had driven Sennacherib out of Lachish, and Rabshakeh had came up, and they met up outside. Rabshakeh gave the report of what Hezekiah had responded, and the king of Assyria said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go ahead and remind them. He probably thinks that since Egypt's here, maybe they're gonna be saved. Well, I'm gonna conquer Egypt and then I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna take care of business. So I just wanna remind them, just because my representative had to leave in the middle of the night to come back to a war doesn't mean that you're off the hook. So this is what he says, verse 10, thus speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all of the lands, devoting them to destruction and shall be delivered. Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Saravaim, the king of Hannah, the king of Iva? And Hezekiah received this letter that Sennacherib had written from the hands of the messengers. He read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. He took the letter and he just spread it right out in front of the altar. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord of hosts, that title Lord of hosts, that means the hosts of heaven, heaven's armies, the God who is in charge of heaven's armies, the God of Israel who's enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, these ones that I've spread before you, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire for they were no gods, but the work of man's hands, wood and stone, and therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. So the in-person threats weren't enough. 
They were followed by written intimidation letters from the enemy saying, I've crushed everybody else. Your God is no different than the other gods of the earth. I'm coming for you. What is Hezekiah's response? It's the same as before. He humbled himself and he went to the Lord in prayer and he spread the letters before the altar and he said, Lord, I need you to deal with this. Now what I want us to do is to try and take just a teaspoon of whatever Hezekiah was sipping that night because this is not the response that we would have when people start writing bad things about us. Now, nobody's writing letters anymore, but people are still writing things online and they're posting all kind of nonsense. And there's this sense inside of you that, man, you can, you can change somebody's mind by just framing the argument the right way. And all of a sudden, you step into something and you get smacked in the face with garbage because that's all it is. It is a garbage-throwing contest. And nobody's mind is being changed. It is an invitation from the enemy to you, for you to participate in an argument and a war that has no end. And if we could start thinking the way Hezekiah thought, that the way we deal with onslaught, the way we deal with, with um, posts, or the way we deal with people trying to cancel uh, uh, um, uh, core belief systems that, that, that the Bible tells us are important to the way that we live our lives. How do we respond to the onslaught of the enemy in any way that it comes, whether in-person intimidation or some subtle tweet online? How do we attack it? How do we respond? What do we do, Lord? If we could just follow Hezekiah's example and man just scatter that post before the Lord and simply pray. Look, we vastly underestimate the power of prayer. It is not our go-to. It's two or three things down the line, but it's rarely ever one. Number one on the list is almost always action. What can I do? I've got bad news for you. There is nothing you can do. The work that God is doing is outside of the realm of your skill set. And it is designed that way to remind you how much we need our Heavenly Father's involvement in our daily life. If you didn't need him, then Christ didn't need to come and die. But we do need him and everything in our life, tribulation-wise, is structured in a way to remind us how much of a deficit we have and how much we need him and how much grace he walks in to love us. And so the next time that onslaught comes in the form of a person, face to face, in the form of some post, in the form of some thought badgering you in, in, in the night that you are not uh, good enough, here's the response, and this is always the response. You humble yourself in prayer and you go to the word because that is the only thing that brings any real lasting change. Now God said he was gonna answer Hezekiah's original prayer, but Hezekiah didn't stop praying, that's good advice. Don't stop praying. And he goes before the Lord again with these letters and he prays, what did the Lord do? Go to verse 33. It says, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city. He won't even shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way he came, 
is the same way he's going to return, and he will not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now watch this, verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians when the people arose early in the morning. Behold, there was nothing but dead bodies. Now just for scale, 185,000 is roughly two and a half Dope Campbell stadiums completely full. That's how many dead bodies were left in the morning. What happened the next morning, Sennacherib, verse 37, king of Assyria departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Yeah, he did. Going home. What was his demise? Because the Lord had promised us a couple chapters ago that because of his treachery against Judah, he was going to be the victim of treachery. Verse 38, and as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramalech, and Sharazar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. Oof. Killed by his own sons, worshiping his false god. And after they escaped to the land of Ararat, Ezarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Now this section of 37 always, it just, I can't help but laugh. Because for 36 chapters, it's been the imminent threat of this great Assyria. They're coming, and they're gonna burn everything in their path. They conquered the northern kingdom. Where are they? Gone. And there's no cities left except for Judah, this massive monster of a nation. What happened to them? They were snuffed out in one evening while everybody slept. While Judah went to bed, the Lord went to work. Hezekiah prayed, and the Lord answered his prayer. His dad tried to take matters into his own hands and caused 35 years of nonsense, and in one night, the Lord answered Hezekiah's prayer and wiped Assyria essentially off the face of the earth. And he didn't just wipe off the nation, he wiped out Sennacherib too. Now I laugh because You've got half the book up to this point is surrounding this one monster of a nation who gets essentially one, two, three, four, five verses at the end. They're building, they're building, what, what, what's gonna happen? And in five verses, it's like, and we're done. And the curtain closes and we're done, that's it. What did the Lord do? He just came in overnight, killed 185,000, there's no more war, and the king goes home and gets killed by his own sons. That's the story, that's it, have a good night. Drive safe. It's ridiculous. But the story isn't just about the way the Lord worked in Assyria. The story is about the way that the Lord is working in his people. And we've got a problem here because now the Assyrian saga is over, but it's not the end of the trust issues because all of this is about who are you going to trust. So what we're about to see now is a transition 
And these verses are important. So 38 and 39, and we're, gonna be, we're stopping at 39, but these two chapters are important because it is, it's like the hinges of a door. We're, we're transitioning from this massive saga about Assyria into this massive saga about Babylon, and this is where it's gonna start. And the section serves as this transition point. So let's go and read a couple of verses in 38. Isaiah 38, it says, in those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, thus says the Lord, set your house in order for you shall die, you will not recover. All right, that's important. Because the prophet just came to him and said, here's what's going to happen. God has decreed you're going to die. Go ahead and set your house in order. Verse two, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. And behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. Now, if you go back and compare these stories with Kings and Chronicles, it looks like this may have taken place before Assyria was driven off, but it's not. The, the other places in, in the Old Testament where this, this story is aligned, it's always aligned where Assyria was driven off, um, uh, Sennacherib is destroyed, um, and then Hezekiah gets sick, and then the envoys from Babylon come. We're gonna cover that in just a second. But that order is important because just because Assyria was sent off and their king was gone, we're told in verse 38 that one of his sons, Ezrahadon, he had taken over. So just because the main bad guy, um, Sennacherib, is gone doesn't mean that Assyria is completely long gone. They're not gone until they're gone, gone. And so there's still this looming threat. Well, I mean, they're gone, but like, what if they come back? And the Lord promises him, he says, I'm gonna give you 15 years of your life and I'm also going to make sure that the Assyrians will never take this city and God kept his promise. But just because Assyria was gone doesn't mean that they were completely gone. And what happens at the end of this is, is like Babylon, well, I'll get to that in a second, I wanna skip ahead. Before we get to 39, I wanna just touch briefly on what's happening here. Because this kind of rubs up against a lot of like theology, right? And I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for this. Because you got one camp of the people of faith who stand up and say, look man, God's decreed everything that's ever gonna happen from the foundation of the world, doesn't matter what you do, he's already chose who's gonna be saved, the plan is set in motion. And then you look at scriptures like this and it's like, well, it looks like God said pretty clearly this is going to happen and then Hezekiah prayed and then something different happened. And it's not the last time this happens. This happens quite a bit in the Old Testament. So what do you do when you're confronted with the reality that God says both things are true? You believe that both things are true. Look, I can't explain to you how both seemingly completely contradictory issues can be both true. But if we're going to be people who submit to the word of God and trust that this is what it tells us, then we have to be okay with there are th the fact that there are some things that you will not be able to figure out with your mind. Paul says it like this, you're looking at everything right now through a mirror dimly. You're not gonna see a clear picture until the other side of eternity. So be okay being a person of faith, which means you're gonna have to trust some things that you don't understand. 
So do I believe that God has established the end of all things? Absolutely. He knew who you were gonna, he, he knew who you were before you were born. He, he knew you when you were formed in your mother's womb. He knew everything. He knows all things that are going to happen. He decrees the end of all things. But I also know that we're running up against these things where there are some times where the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. And praying, God answers praying people. And how that works into the plan that he's already established and how, and how we can look at these things that look contradictory, I don't have answers for you, I'm sorry. People have been fighting about this for 1,500 years. But you're just gonna have to be okay with the fact that God works things together in his wisdom. And that can be enough for us. Okay? Just wanna touch on that quickly. Now go over to 39. Now I told you Assyria was already defeated, but there's still a source of fear in the region. And so one of the things that that they were kind of, uh, the the region was worried about, especially Babylon, was how are we going to defeat um, Assyria if they raise their ugly head again? So verse one in chapter 39, it says, at the time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had been, and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory. All that was found in his storehouses, there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. All right, now what is going on with this envoy? I kind of touched on it just a a minute ago, but essentially what's happening is Babylon's afraid that Assyria is going to rise up, so they want to take advantage of the fact that Assyria has been sent home with their tail between their legs. So Babylon is doing a little envoy tour around the nations, the ones that are left, saying, does anybody want to form an alliance with us? We can get strong. Babylon's always doing this. Babylon's always forming an alliance with people. And on their tour, they decide to stop by in Jerusalem under the guise of, we heard you were six, we brought you these flowers. Are you okay? And as the guy's like, I'm doing great, man. Thanks for coming by. So good to see you. Babylon came with an ulterior motive. And what does Hezekiah do? He throws a banquet for them. He throws a party for them. And he takes them on a prosperity tour through the entire city. Look at all the gold we have left. Look at all the silver they never got. Look at all the weapons we still have. Assyria was at our door, and guess what? We stopped them. There's not a single mention of the Lord anywhere in these two verses. It's all, I showed them my stuff, I showed them my stuff, I showed them my stuff. Now in 2 Chronicles 32 verses 24, we're told that God left Hezekiah right before this envoy showed up with the intention to test him. The envoy was there sent by the Lord to test Hezekiah's character. And the reason why he's testing his character and the reason why we have 38 and 39, because it looks like Hezekiah is a hero, right? You got the enemy at the gate, so what does he do? He prays, good job, Hezekiah. Right, he's sick, what does he do? He prays, come on, Hezekiah, you're my boy. This is awesome. You're the kind of leader we've been waiting for. But there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a common denominator to both the times of Hezekiah going and praying, and that is, He's, at, he's experiencing the pressure of imminent threat. All of us 
can seek the Lord when we're about to die. Church attendance always goes up when there's mass hysteria. It is not a strange thing for people to start taking eternity seriously when there is an imminent threat at the door. So the question that the Lord wants Hezekiah to wrestle with is, are you faithful to me? Do you pray and seek me only when things are difficult or do you seek me and pray and seek my word and love me even when things are at peace? What do you do in times of peace? Are you as desperate for me in peacetime as you are in wartime. Let's go to verse three. Then Hezekiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah says, oh, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, well, they've seen everything in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. And Hezekiah, excuse me, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day will be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, will be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah looked at Isaiah and said, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought to himself, at least there will be peace and security in my days. When the pressure was not on, the true character of Hezekiah was revealed. Now why did Isaiah put this in there? Why did Isaiah give us a picture of a, of a seemingly great king who models prayer and a hunger for the word? Why does he put that up for us to see and then just shatter it? Because Isaiah's got a goal here and it is not to elevate men. It is to prepare the hearts of the people that it doesn't matter how good somebody is, they will always fall short in God's eyes. There is not a leader on earth who is truly qualified to lead God's people without sin except for this one guy I've been talking about for the last 35 chapters and we're calling him the, the Messiah. The Lord has had enough of weak leaders who sell themselves out, who will take bribes, who, who, who will tell the people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear, what God is saying. He's had enough of that. And so Isaiah has been telling everybody in the book, God is going to clear house. He's going to clean house from top to bottom. And that means starting at top to bottom. That means all of the leaders, they've got to go. He's going to toss them right out. But he's not going to leave you without leadership. He's going to bring in a better leader. And there's coming this guy who's going to lead with humility and he's going to wash his disciples' feet and he's going to love you and he's going to give himself for you and he's not going to come in demanding you serve him. He's going to come in on his knees serving you. And we're like, what kind of king is that? That's a, that, that, that is the goal of Isaiah. That's why he gives us the picture of a seemingly great king and then lets him just crumble before our eyes because it's a constant reminder for us not to put our hope in men. There's only one guy who gets our hope, and that's Jesus. 
And so from this point forward, from 40 onward, he's preparing the people for the fact that they were given this opportunity to turn to the Lord but they chose to turn back to sin because Hezekiah is a representation of the people. It's not just the king, it's the whole nation. And if Hezekiah is weak, it means the nation is weak. And they were just saved at the hands of the Lord, but when things were peaceful, they turned back to their own pride. And so what God says is, okay, I'm gonna crank up the tribulation, and this time the enemy's not just gonna come at your doorstep and stop. This time he's gonna come into the gates, and he's gonna take your sons and he's gonna send them off to be servants in a foreign land and you're gonna lose your home. And the next 26 chapters are nothing but Isaiah telling the people that there is a time coming. And this is what's wild about the next 26 years. Isaiah's prophesying that this is gonna come, that Babylon's gonna come, but he never lived to see it. This doesn't happen until 586 and we're around 701. It's like he's, he's speaking way into the future about things that are gonna be taking place. But the whole reason he's doing it, he's trying to prepare the people, look, because of your disobedience, the Lord is going to orchestrate a plan so that you lose your home and the pressure is so great that you're gonna cry out for me. And even when times of peace come, you're still gonna cry out for me because I'm purifying my people like fine gold. Now, why is this helpful for us? Why is this beneficial for us? Because if you read the New Testament, you walk away with this understanding that this world isn't really our home because all of us were born again. See, you were born once here on this earth but when you chose to put your faith in Jesus, you were born again, and your citizenship isn't this country, it isn't this world. When you were born again, your citizenship is in heaven, and so you're not a resident of this place, you're a resident of that place, and you're visiting here. And if you need a reference for what that looks like, in living it out, the closest that we're gonna to come to is the next 70 years that Isaiah is gonna describe as the exile living in Babylon. Folks, this is not our home. That's our home. This place is more like Babylon than it is home. And this place is more like living in exile than it is living in comfort and finding yourself a nice place to retire. If your end goal is to make this life as comfortable as possible, then you're forfeiting your next life. If your goal is to love the things of this world more than to love the things of God, then you will not inherit the things of God. And so starting next week, when we get into chapter 40, moving forward, the tone changes and it's all about the mindset of God's people living in a land that is not their home, but still fixing their eyes on the faithfulness of God, because just like the Israelites will eventually return to their home when exile is over, all of us will return to our home when he splits the sky and calls us home. Amen? Let's end on that. Let's, let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.